Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 5th edition of WorkConf Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal upheld a restraining order against an injured Pomona police officer. Here's what happened in the case of City of Pomona versus Heiselt. For 21 years, Leonard Heiselt was a United States Marine and, since 2002, he worked as a police officer for the City of Pomona. In 2009, he sustained injuries to both shoulders, his left bicep, and left elbow while in the course of his employment. He filed a workers' compensation claim for his injuries. After his comp case was resolved, he worked directly with the City of Pomona Human Resources Department on remaining case issues. In 2010, the department could no longer reasonably accommodate his work restrictions and sent Officer Heiselt home. Most of the controversy giving rise to the restraining order against him involved his claim for disability retirement. In this effort, Heiselt was highly confrontational with the city employees. In one telephone conversation with Bill Johnson, the Human Resources Director, Heiselt said something to the effect of, do I have to cock my gun or my gun is cocked? Rebecca Valdez, an assistant in the Human Resources Department, testified that during the conversation, Heiselt was extremely upset. There was a lot of screaming and yelling, and Mr. Johnson made a lot of efforts to try and calm Mr. Heiselt down. On another occasion, Heiselt went to the Human Resources Department to see Pat Whitfield, a workers' compensation examiner, about money he believed should be reimbursed to him for medical expenses. He told her that he had just wasted three hours of his day and that she was inept and incompetent and couldn't think outside the box because she could have telephoned his physician to obtain the information she needed. Heiselt, while in Whitfield's very small office and about three feet from her, kept yelling and yelling at Whitfield that she did not know what she was doing and he wanted answers. Heiselt testified that he did not yell during his meeting with Whitfield, but that the conversation was pretty much one way as he did not want to hear what she had to say. A number of other contacts with the city over the months went equally as badly. The trial court issued a permanent injunction pursuant to which he was ordered not to commit acts of violence or make threats of violence against employees working at City Hall, to go within 100 yards of employees' homes or workplaces, or go within 100 yards of City Hall and the City of Pomona Police Department. He was also ordered to dispose of any guns or other firearms in his immediate possession or control. Heiselt appealed the order, and the Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case of the City of Pomona versus Heiselt. The Court of Appeal found that there was sufficient evidence to support a finding that Heiselt engaged in a series of willful acts evidencing a continuity of purpose that would place a reasonable person in fear for his or her safety. The Court of Appeal held that a DOR is not required to perfect an appeal of rehabilitation benefits. Here's what happened in the published opinion of the Kroger Company versus WCAB and Miguel Rodriguez. Rodriguez sustained an injury to his left knee in November 1999 
while employed as a grocery manager for the Kroger Company. He apparently sustained a second injury in December 1999, and both injuries were admitted. Rodriguez filed two workers' compensation claims. In 2007, the Rehabilitation Unit awarded Rodriguez retroactive vocational rehabilitation maintenance allowance from 2000. The notice of the award stated that an appeal of the award had to be filed within 20 days from the date the award was served. On November 27, 2007, the employer filed a document captioned Petition for Appeal of the Determination of the Rehabilitation Unit, dated November 7, 2007. On the very next day, the employer filed an amended petition for appeal of the determination of the Rehabilitation Unit, in which it set forth, in greater lengths, its arguments on the merits of the appeal, with extensive documentation supporting the arguments. On the same day that the employer filed the amended notice, it filed or attempted to file a declaration of readiness to proceed. The work comp judge concluded that the appeal was not timely or proper. The work comp judge noted in his opinion that the first notice of appeal filed on November 27th was not accompanied by a DOR, and the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board denied reconsideration. A valid appeal of the award of rehabilitation would have avoided payment of the benefit when the rehabilitation statutes were repealed in 2009. The Court of Appeal in the published opinion of the Kroger Company versus WCAB and Miguel Rodriguez reversed. In reversing, the Court of Appeal said that the work comp judge and the WCAB's theory that Regulation 10955 that required the concurrent filing of a DOR operated jurisdictionally to invalidate an otherwise valid notice of appeal to be completely without merit. The appeal taken on November 27, 2007 was deemed to be effective. And now our fraud report. Global drug makers are paying tens of millions of dollars to settle U.S. allegations that they bribed their way across emerging markets. But harsher penalties may be needed to deter the practice in untapped regions where billions are at stake. Federal authorities have cast a wide net to weed out suspected gift-giving and kickbacks to foreign doctors and government officials to gain a foothold in new markets in Asia Eastern Europe, and Latin America. At least eight of the world's top ten drug drug makers, including Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson, have disclosed U.S. probes under the 1977 Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, or the FCPA. Pfizer agreed to pay $60 million this year to settle FCPA charges and J&J reached a $70 million settlement last year. Pfizer is on track to record $10 billion in sales from emerging markets this year, while J&J said Brazil, Russia, India, and China accounted for just under 10% of the $65 billion in sales it reported last year. With so much at stake outside of established markets in the United States and Europe, Some experts say fines like these are hardly a deterrent. The $60 million fine for Pfizer to a layperson sounds like quite a bit of money, but in perspective, it looks less than two days of Lipitor sales during its peak. 
The cholesterol pill at its height was a $13 billion a year cash cow for Pfizer. Kara Brockmeyer, chief of FCPA investigations within the Securities and Exchange Commission's Enforcement Division, said the SEC and Department of Justice make a considerable effort to ensure penalties are appropriate and a deterrent. And there is yet to be a repeat of FCPA prosecutions. The SEC relies on legal provisions that call for disgorgement of profits based on ill-gotten gains plus penalties. Companies that report violations and cooperate with authorities are often rewarded with penalty reductions. Penalties across all industries have averaged less than $20 million. In 2009, Danish insulin maker Novo Nordisk paid $9 million for FCPA violations, while medical device maker Smith & Nephew this year agreed to $22 million in fines and profit disgorgement. The largest FCPA penalty on record was $800 million paid in 2008 by Germany-based Siemens. The industry's FCPA payments pale in comparison to billion-dollar settlements over allegations drug makers promoted medications for unapproved uses in the United States. These penalties often involve how much federal Medicare and Medicaid programs spend on the so-called off-label prescriptions. Closing arguments in a California tax evasion case that prosecutors are calling the largest case of medical fraud in the United States ever. Four defendants associated with the Unity Surgical Outpatient Center stand accused in the trial. They include two administrators of the facility as well as their attorney and accountant. Unity Surgical Outpatient Center is located in Buena Park, California. The center solicited over 2,800 patients from locations throughout the nation. The individuals were healthy and not in need of medical procedures. Yet the center billed insurance companies over $150 million in the fraud for a variety of medical procedures. A grand jury first indicted the foursome in 2008. The indictment involves two major parts. The first part is tax evasion charges stemming from fraudulent tax returns that understated the defendant's income. The second part is the insurance fraud related to the billings. The current trial involves only the tax evasion charges. A future trial will address the insurance fraud case. If the defendants are found guilty on the tax evasion charges, they will receive anywhere from 5 to 15 years in prison. However, for the insurance fraud charges, they could each receive a life sentence. Defense attorneys, including Roy Dixon, who is representing himself, have argued that the defendants were not aware of the fraudulent insurance claims and were simply doing their jobs for their boss, Tam (coughs) Vu Pham. Pham was found guilty of felony charges in 2005 related to insurance fraud, money laundering, and other charges. He received a 12-year prison sentence. In addition, 13 additional defendants were found guilty of fraud in 2008, including several physicians who worked at the center. To date, this trial has lasted almost three months. Jurors have heard testimony from over 40 witnesses and have reviewed over 800 pieces of evidence. It is not known how long they will deliberate before returning a verdict against the four defendants. A 
Pahas and a La Puente Unified Substitute teacher accused of workers' compensation insurance fraud against the school district turned herself in to police last week. 63-year-old Alicia Becerra Ramirez was charged with five counts of felony insurance fraud and one count of attempted perjury. She has pleaded not guilty. Following her arrest, she was released without bail and is due back in court on November 30. Ramirez is the seventh Hacienda La Puente employee to be charged with insurance fraud since January 2011. Charges were filed against Ramirez after insurance investigators said they caught her on video performing strenuous activities, despite claiming she was suffering from a shoulder injury that required surgery and preventing her from working. Bill Warner, manager of the Special Investigations Unit for Intercare Holdings Insurance Services, which handles the school district's insurance claims, said she was doing a lot of yard work when she was videotaped. Ramirez claimed she injured her shoulder in May 2010 when a chair she sat down on tipped over, causing her to fall. Ramirez's initial claim was for pain in the lower back and buttocks, but was later changed <clears throat> to shoulder pain. While on disability, Ramirez collected nearly $12,000 in pay, according to the company. While each of the charges Ramirez faces carries a possibility of two to five years in jail, other district employees convicted of similar charges have been sentenced to probation, ordered to pay restitution, and perform community service. And in financial news, the San Jose City Council voted to consider partially outsourcing workers' compensation claims administration in hope of shrinking costs that are substantially higher than other cities and counties. Mayor Chuck Reed thinks that the city could potentially save many millions of dollars. The 7-4 to four vote came over objections from union leaders who complained that the city's claims adjusters are overworked due to budget cuts that have paired staffing. The city spent almost $18 million in the past budget year on workers' compensation costs, a figure similar to previous years. City departments spent from their own budgets an additional $7.5 million on disability leave, supplement benefit on top of that. Although city costs decreased slightly in the past year, costs had risen over the previous four budget years, peaking in 2010-11 with more than $19 million in workers' compensation costs and an additional $8.3 million for the leave supplement. San Jose's cost per claim about $17,000 from 2004 to 2007 was substantially higher than Contra Costa County, San Francisco, Sacramento, Long Beach, Santa Clara, and the county, and the San Diego. The approved proposal calls for the city to solicit bids from outside companies or organizations to administer 40% to 50% of the city's workers' compensation caseload for a two-year period. The city has 17 budgeted positions for administering workers' compensation, but there currently are seven vacancies. City administrators said the outsourcing pilot program could be done without laying off city workers, although some employees would be reassigned. 
A new report released by NCCI Holdings concludes that an aging workforce has far less negative impact on workers' compensation claim costs than observers had thought. Back in 2011, NCCI published a study on the aging workforce which concluded that, on average, costs for workers aged 35 and older tend to be quite similar. In contrast, they are higher than the average cost for workers aged 16 to 34. From a workers' compensation perspective, the higher costs are largely offset by the higher premium due to higher wages of older workers. Overall, the findings can be viewed as reassuring in that an aging workforce appears to have a far less negative impact on workers' compensation claim costs than might have been previously thought. This new study extends the 2011 NCCI analysis and finds additional similarities between 35 and older age cohorts. And in regulatory news, Cal OSHA has fined a Salinas vegetable processing plant nearly $35,000 for serious worker safety violations. New Star Fresh Foods was cited in connection with chlorine leaks that resulted in multiple evacuations and 99 workers seeking medical attention in May. The investigation was prompted by four workers' complaints to California Rural Legal Assistance in Salinas. CRLA attorney Michael Marsh said workers had been complaining to the company for nearly two weeks about the odor of chlorine in the air and burning in their eyes and throats. The company responded by evacuating and opening windows and turning on fans, he said, but they did not address the root cause until Cal OSHA arrived on May 18. Marsh said Newstar was one of several local packing companies that responded to the deadly 2006 E. coli outbreak in bagged spinach by switching from liquid chlorine to chlorine dioxide, a gas. The Cal OSHA citation said that when the company's automated controls failed, it turned to hand dosing of chlorine and citric acid. The company has about a week to appeal the October 22nd decision. A new congressional report says that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's power to regulate compounded drugs similar to those linked to a deadly meningitis outbreak is legally non-binding and lacks the authority of stringent standards imposed on drug manufacturers. The report drew an immediate response from FDA Commissioner Margaret Hamburg, who said the agency is committed to working with Congress and others to garner the authority needed to help prevent tragedies like this from happening again. Over the years, there has been substantial debate within Congress about the appropriate amount of FDA oversight and regulation of compounding pharmacies. But unfortunately, Hamburg said in a statement that there has been a lack of consensus and many challenges from the industry. FDA's authority over compounding pharmacies is more limited by statute than with drug manufacturers. The report and Hamburg's comments surfaced as Congress has begun preliminary discussions that could give the FDA new powers to oversee compounding pharmacies like the New England Compounding Center, which is at the heart of a fungal meningitis outbreak that has sickened about 330 people, including 25 who have died in 18 states. But the public health crisis has also stirred debate about how much authority the FDA actually needs. 
Last week, the advocacy group Public Citizen called on the Department of Health and Human Services to investigate the agency on grounds that it failed to exercise its existing authority to prevent the meningitis outbreak. The FDA issued a warning letter to New England Compounding Center back in 2006 describing potential health risks, including microbial contamination. But there's been little evidence of a follow-up. Congressional investigators also say there is evidence that the FDA and state regulators knew of potential problems at the New England Compounding Center back in 2002. Compounding is a traditional pharmacy practice in which a pharmacist alters, mixes, or recombines ingredients to make a drug that meets the special needs of a patient with a physician's prescription. But in recent decades, officials say some compounding operations have grown to resemble full-scale manufacturing without meeting FDA standards. The FDA has issued dozens of warning letters against compounding pharmacies since 2001 but the report said the agency has based its enforcement actions on relatively weak, non-binding guidance documents since a 1997 law granting it oversight of new drugs was struck down in U.S. courts more than a decade ago in cases brought by compounders. Guidance documents do not establish legally enforceable rights or responsibilities and do not legally bind the public or the FDA. That gives the agency far less power over compounding operations than it has over conventional drug manufacturers, which must submit to stringent safety and efficacy standards. Experts from the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program Center of Excellence at Brandeis University's Heller School for Social Policy and Management systematically assessed prescription drug monitoring programs and found a patchwork of strategies and standards. Their report also outlines best practices that all U.S. states and territories can use to improve their effectiveness. Among the study's primary conclusions, prescription drug monitoring programs should shift from a reactive to a proactive approach. Where this is already taking place, it has proven to be very effective. By the end of 2001, the report found that 16 states had authorized the creation of prescription drug monitoring programs. Today, 41 states have programs in operation. The California Department of Justice has a prescription drug monitoring program system which allows pre-registered users, including licensed healthcare prescribers, eligible to prescribe controlled substances, pharmacists authorized to dispense controlled substances, law enforcement, and regulatory boards to access timely patient-controlled substance history information. The California program is known as the Controlled Substance Utilization Review and Evaluation System, or CURIES. The California database contains over 100 million entries of controlled substance drugs that were dispensed in California. Each year, the Curies program responds to more than 60,000 requests from practitioners and pharmacists. The online Curies system will make it much easier for authorized prescribers and pharmacists to quickly review controlled substance information by way of the automated patient activity report in an effort to identify and deter drug abuse and diversion through accurate and rapid tracking of Schedule II 
through Schedule Four controlled substances. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I am Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.